All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, it's a privilege to come before um, my brothers and sisters tonight, and I do pray that you would be teaching us from your word the things you want us to know, Lord. Help me to be careful with what I say, not to forget the things I should say, and not to say anything I shouldn't, Lord. We pray the Holy Spirit would uh, be teaching us as we go and look at your word and understand what you want us to know. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, good evening. And up here, you see uh, another artist. This time I've told you who he is because I wouldn't be able to identify him either. This is Michelangelo. Uh, let me see if I got my little thing going. Good, okay, good. And uh, all right, so he's best known for the Sistine Chapel. And <clears throat> he did this, uh, the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel um, probably about the, the middle of his career. And about 25 years later, he did uh, the back wall. This back wall here is known as the, the Last Judgment. And let me do the next one here. This, is, this, this one here, the Last Judgment, is not as popular to look at but I think it's pretty important. Let me try to tell you what's going on. Now, <laughs> keep in mind that all religious art is not pure theology. It's an artist's interpretation, potentially, of what uh, he sees in the Bible. Uh, so Michelangelo was born before the Reformation, and uh, unfortunately there was uh, some pagan stuff mixed in there, okay? Uh, especially the, the chapel, the Sistine Chapel itself, it's got a bunch of pagan images, not to fear. Uh, we're going to look at something that doesn't appear to be too pagan. Um, so because my parents were artists, I didn't, as I said, I didn't have art, uh, I didn't have uh, Sports Illustrated magazines to look at, I had art books to look at, and I spent a lot of time looking at art books. And I liked them, I just would entertain myself forever. Uh, eventually I'll see if I can uh, bring up one of my favorite artists is Vesalius, which did all these anatomical studies. And uh, people all dissected and things like that. I don't know why I loved them, but it was just fascinating to see these things. Anyhow, what's going on here is this is heaven above, Christ is in the center, and uh, the, the, this is the resurrection of the, the dead. And over here, they're kind of coming out of the graves here. And some are being escorted up to heaven. And others somehow are making their way to this side here. And this is the side of the damned. These people are headed to the lake of fire. And I think you can kind of see that here. And what I want to look at, a very haunting picture, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at some verses. In fact, why don't you get your Bibles ready to look at a verse, because this will go along with this, is Luke chapter 16. I want to connect what we're looking at to the scriptures. Luke chapter 16. Okay, This is a famous story of a rich man and Lazarus. Okay, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 and on. Okay, so let's look at this next one here. <clears throat> so this particular... Uh, individual 
Uh, he's known as the damned soul. He's headed to hell, and the demons are dragging him down. And the question is, what do you think Michelangelo was trying to get across there? What do you think? All right? You don't have to have an answer. Well, here's what I think. And when we read Luke, I think we'll also see it. I think he's realizing, my God, why didn't I listen to the warnings? I had a whole lifetime full of warnings not to go to the place I am now going to go to. And there's no way to get out of it. He is headed there. Now, whether it's theologically correct that demons will drag him down, I don't know. But I do know that without Christ, that's where he's headed. That's, that's where any of us, if we have not accepted what Christ did on the cross, remember last week we looked at Christ being raised up, and we saw uh, uh, Rembrandt painting himself into that picture, identifying himself, I put Christ on the cross, he took my place. I put Christ on the cross. He took my place. And so I think part of what's going on here is it is so horrendous, he doesn't even want to look. That's how bad it is. Now, am I happy that there's a place called hell and it's full of torment? No, I'm not. But I'm not God. I don't make the rules. We're just subject subject to God's righteous judgment. Uh, I guess if it was up to Louis, I... Everyone just have a good time forever, but I'm not God. And I, again, I don't make the rules. I just have to understand them. And I think the other side here is just his internal struggle of what is about to happen that's unavoidable. Now, with the, that backdrop about warning, and you should have paid attention to it, we'll look at the rich man in Lazarus, and we'll just read it. Now, there was a rich man. And he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Uh, Besides, uh, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. And I think in the Last Judgment, where uh, uh, Michelangelo does show people being taken by angels to heaven, in this case here, represented by uh, Abraham's bosom, we won't get into the technicalities of what what that was talking about, but there is is some legitimacy to put angels there. Uh, Now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels uh, to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, which is hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham afar away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things. Likewise, Lazarus received bad things, but now he's being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, 
Between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able to, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then he said, uh, then I beg you, Father, uh, that you send uh, him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they'll not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So this whole uh, discussion here and true story is a, a case of people being uh, warned and then uh, now, in this case here, the rich man is saying, send someone to warn my, my brothers. And, um, you know, Jesus is giving this uh, story, saying, listen, even if someone rises from the dead, they won't. And I think this poor fellow, the damned one, uh, was warned plenty of times. And so the question is, <laughs> I don't know everyone here, I don't know your eternal condition, but have you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? That is the only way to escape what this person in an artistic fashion is facing. It's not a threat. It's not like I'm gonna scare you into salvation, like if you don't do it, you're gonna burn in hell. It's not, that's not the point. The point is, is that there's one or two places to go after you die. And there's no reason anyone needs to go to hell because Christ paid for our sins. You just need to understand that Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead. And so that's, I want to leave you with that uh, tonight. All right. What do we got? Okay. I've got to set my little clock here. <laughs> okay. I need all the help I can get. Okay. So let, let, me get this, let me get this done down here. Okay, we'll get him clicked out. Okay, we, uh, we're going to go back to Honey in the Bible. Week one, <laughs> because I always pack too much in to everything, and we're going to keep going. All right, then we got here. Good, good, good. Okay. Let's see where we were. <clears throat> what I'm trying to do with this first, um, I hate to use the word lesson, uh, but whatever it's called, I have four parts, is trying to make the case that it's probably incorrect to say that the land of milk and honey was a land of milk and date honey. And I'm going to try to establish why I think that's wrong. Okay? Um, and we talked about this honey exception. And then we went to this, this, the, the idea of the Mishnah and the Talmud. And someone might ask, why would you go there? Uh, that's not inspired. And you're right, it's not inspired. The problem is is that if you look at Old Testament commentaries done by Christians, they'll often go right back to the Mishnah and the Talmud saying, those rabbis back then said, oh, that wasn't uh, honeybee honey, uh, that was date honey. And so I'm stuck with trying to uh, either accept that or say, I think they were wrong. And I can say after my research, I think they were wrong, and I, I'm going to try to sustain that and prove that from a variety of ways. 
Now, you might say, Lou, why don't you just tell us that they were wrong and go on to the next thing? Because that's not how I'm wired. I am wired, I need this, what I call OQE, objective quality evidence. I need to find, you know, build a case why this has to be true rather than just saying it. Uh, it drives me nuts when people do that. You know, just, you know, if, if it's true, you should ought to be able to at least establish some way of proving that. So then we looked at this particular journal article, peer reviewed journal article, and we kind of read through this, and they're saying, listen, uh, we're Jews and we're professors and all this other stuff, and we think, after studying this, that, and this last little section here, and, and we're, we're, we're going to look at, we're going to, I like beating a horse until there's no tail, legs, or anything left. Even his horseshoes are gone. So we're going to keep doing that. And this one here, Professor Mazar said, listen, uh, Forty said that most of these things refer to bees' honey. And <clears throat> one of the reasons I want to try to prove this, so, and as I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but uh, sometimes you need to repeat this a few times. Uh, God told Moses that you're going to go to a great spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, I'm also going to prove uh, that the land of Egypt was a land flowing with milk and honey, bee honey. And I'll, it's indisputable. And once I get there, I will, I, you, you'll say, there's no, no kidding. So my question, just on the face of it, is uh, date honey doesn't do much for any culture. It's a nice jam. That's about it. It has no other properties, no medicinal properties. It doesn't keep its spoils. It doesn't provide wax. We'll go into all these things. So I think when we talked about these three global uh, uh, themes in the Bible, God's promises, God's provision, and God's protection, it would be pretty uh, cheap of God to say, <clears throat> you're leaving a land that is truly flowing with fantastic honeybee honey, and I'm going to send you to a land that doesn't have any of that, just has this squashed date honey, this date jam. I think, you know, they would say, gee, that's not much of a, a deal. Why don't we just stay there? In fact, there's a verse we'll eventually look at where they kind of indicate this. And so hopefully you just keep that in the back of your mind. All right, so now we're going to keep going here. We look at the date palms. We looked here, all this stuff. Got to remember where I left off. Oh yeah, we looked uh, these. Okay, beekeeping methods. Oh, wait, bees are so important. Okay, <laughs> this is the next. This is it's a very interesting one. Okay, so origin of the honeybee. Um, another journal article, and I should have put a legend here, but this area here, most etymologists and the. Uh, folks who are involved in the DNA sequencing, guess where they say the honeybee started? Right there, kind of where the Garden of Eden is and all that stuff, and it spread outward. I remember one time talking to uh, one of my mentors, uh, who is a complete atheist, and uh, he was waxing eloquent about the mitochondrial DNA, uh, and they said, Lou, do you realize they have been able to narrow that down to a single man and a single woman. And I said, I do. I said, do you know what their names were? <laughs> I said, no, who? I said, Adam and Eve. Oh, he got so mad at me. Because <laughs> I loved using arguments against the same people who end up arguing you know, my point or the point 
against themselves. So anyhow, interesting point. Bees kind of started here and moved outward, all right? All right, what's the next one here? Okay, beekeeping methods. So in the wild, uh, honeybees uh, will make nests in trees. And uh, they build their hives like this. Um, the combs are always separated by what's known as bee distance. Uh, the problem is you don't know where they are. You, like John the Baptist ate wild honey, so he had to find it. Uh, but he didn't cultivate bees. So bees are really the only insect that humans have been able to domesticate. If you think about that, it's really the only insect that we've been able to domesticate. And there's a symbiotic relationship, especially today. Bees need us because of the, the uh, parasites that they have. There are very few feral or wild uh, colonies. Um, Without humans to manage them because of these uh, pests, parasites, most bee colonies uh, will die within a year. That's the end of them. So these are wild, uh, wild honeybees, and um, they're just out there. But they're not reliable. They're not reliable at all in the sense that if you're going to have a civilization that needs a continuous food supply, uh, just hoping you find some wild uh, uh, honey, uh, honeybees in a tree uh, is, uh, is hope and not anything else. So the old-fashioned method of, of having uh, honeybees is these things called skeps, and you've all seen this. Uh, they're actually illegal in, in, in America. You can't, you can't use them. Uh, and in here are the same kind of combs, and the bees just build, they start off empty. And they put some bees in there, and before you know it, they've made all these combs. The, the, there's two reasons why they're illegal. One is you can't inspect them for parasites and diseases. So in America, you can't use these things legally. Um, and the other thing is, in order to get the honey out of these things, you have to basically kill all the bees inside there, is what they, what they do with these types of hives, and just because of the, their orientation, and scrape out all the combs, so you've killed all your bees, and now you've got some honey, that's great, but now you don't have any bees. So they turn out to be not a very effective way. Okay, and so how do we do it today? And oh, by the way, uh, the, the, this is a modern beehive, just so you understand, and in here they have these things called frames, and they replace those dangling-looking things that uh, the, 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 the bees would naturally make, and they're spaced just like that, and so the bees make all their little combs in here. Uh, this is where they live, the bees, the mama bee, the queen bee, and all the baby bees, and some honey, and all the extra honey is what we're after. They all, that all goes up here, and there's this wire thing called a queen excluder. The queen is a big, fat lady. And she can't get through these little wires here, so hopefully there's just honey up here. And um, so here's what one of those combs actually look like. So there's one of, the, there's one of those removable combs right here. Uh, there's all the baby bees, all in their little cocoons, so to speak. Uh, some are popping out. These little holes here, the bees have hatched. Uh, and the queen will go back and start to fill those in, but uh, it's around a 20-day gesta gestation period, and eventually these will all hatch, and uh, she'll put more, uh, lay more eggs. A, a queen lays around 1,000 eggs a day. She's busy, real busy, okay? And what's all this white stuff? This is their, this is their pantry. That's all honey. And so they, they put like a honey dome here, and then above, like I said, uh, above this, they'll just load that up with honey, and that's what I take, okay? 
And, uh, but ancient beekeeping uh, is somewhat similar. Uh, I didn't list the date here. So uh, beekeeping has been in Egypt for about uh, 5,000 years, about 3,000 years before Christ. We can tell from uh, etchings, drawings, uh, um, yeah, uh, and what dynasty they were in. And so what you see here is, uh, by the way, these are slaves. Uh, slaves are always dressed in loincloths. They're unlikely Egyptians. Just keep that in the back of your mind. These are likely slaves taking care of. These are Egyptian beehives that are still used today. And I'm going to look at some pictures of those. And so what this is, this is a smoker. And this guy here is smoking the bees. And this guy here is taking out some of the honeycombs, okay? Now, he, the way they do it, they can reach in there, and the bees, in this case, have kind of put to the outside of that entrance just the pure honey. Remember I said in a normal American hives, the honey's at the top? Well, just turn that to the side, okay? So uh, on one end, this is, you can see maybe a little hole. The bees fly in this way, and there's a little door, and we're gonna see this later on. They can open that door, and take these combs of honey out. Uh, and this is kind of representative of a honey container, but we're gonna look at some other ones because I'm trying to establish the fact that in ancient Egypt, there was beekeeping. Uh, yes, okay, so now, now I've got my date here. So 2400 BC right here. So it starts over here, Th this is a, uh, a big, they call them reliefs. So, and it's kind of, it, unfortunately, a lot of these things got cracked up and so they kind of piece them together. Uh, on this side, it's sort of the same thing. A guy is taking combs out of the, um, out of the beehives. And this person here is uh, putting them in a pot. Uh, and I don't know if he's uh, squeezing the honey out or not, but these guys are continuing to process it. And keep in mind, these are all slaves. Uh, what you do see on this side is another kind of a curious thing. The Egyptians use these dedicated honey pots. They look like this sometimes. Other times they have more of like a, a triangular lid too. I don't know why they did that. And what these little stripes are, are uh, and this, what this guy is doing, um, honey will keep forever uh, at 18% moisture but it's hydroscopic, which means it will absorb moisture from the air. So they have to be careful with it. That's why you keep a jar, you know, if you have honey, put a lid on your jar, otherwise if you're in a humid, air, uh, humid environment, the honey will start to gain moisture and go bad. Well, guess what, the Egyptians knew this too. These jars are being sealed with beeswax, so they're hermetically sealed until they need them, and then they can put them in storehouses and store them up. And oh, by the way, this is the honeybee, and we're gonna see this little guy later on, I think maybe in, uh, the second section I'm going to teach you, okay? The Egyptians really loved uh, their honeybee. So this is, um, let's see, this, this one here is from 2400 BC. This next one is another relief, and they know 
the same thing is happening, but they know from other dating methods that this was during the time of, of Moses. And these guys are still slaves taking care of these, uh, these, these, uh, these beehives. And something to think about is uh, who were these slaves? Could they have been Israelites? We don't know. Uh, but they were enslaved during that time, and it was dirty work, right? As, and th- those were definitely not... Uh, if they were Egyptians, they were enslaved Egyptians. Okay, and this is another example of um, honey processing. And it's kind of like a pictograph, right? It starts here. Guys are taking the honey out. They're processing it here, and they're sealing it up hermetically, and now they're storing it up, okay? And it's just it's kind of showing what's going on uh, there. And again, slaves processing honey during the time of Moses. So uh, these are what beehives are in Egypt. They use the same ones today. In fact, in the 90s, they tried to introduce the American-style hives, and they didn't, the Egyptians did not like them. And so now uh, there are very few really running around in Egypt they like these mud ones here. Uh, and uh, the bees come in on uh, this end. I'm not sure why they had these guys turned around. I, I didn't get enough of an explanation, but I do know these are the same kinds of pots, the same kind of honey cylinders they used during uh, the Israelites' time in Egypt. Uh, and they still use them today. And there, there is just one you're seeing there, there's the honeycomb, and they reach in there and they take it, okay? Uh, now, let's see. What do we have here? Okay, so this is another paper uh, by Dr. Mazar, uh, and he's talking, what, what, what we're going to eventually get to, like in the next slide, uh, in 2008, a very important discovery was made in Israel at Tel Rof, and up until that point, there had never been any archaeological evidence that the Jews kept bees. And that was another reason why people uh, writing commentaries would refer back to the Talmud, because in the absence of that, they said, well, I guess those guys 2,000 years ago said it was just date honey. Uh, and that is not true anymore. So what, what, uh, this is an excerpt. Uh, from his, uh, his paper. It says, the importance of honey and beeswax in the ancient Near East can be inferred from Egyptian, Canaanite, and Hittite sources, right? Those other cultures uh, were using uh, uh, and, and managing bees. Textual and pictorial sources from ancient Egypt are also of particular interest. The story of sinew attributed to the Middle Kingdom, right, 2,000 years, alludes to the abundance of honey and oil in his palace of residence in the land of Cana. So, the other point I'm going to eventually make is that there were domesticated bees in the areas that the Israelites were eventually going to. And I think there's a passage in there. He says, I'm going to give you the stuff you never worked for, the vineyards and the other things, because well, and, and, you're going to get booty. What do, you think, what do you think you're going to get booty? They're going to get all those beehives, right? Because possession is nine-tenths of the law. And they go in there and kick the people out, they're going to take their beehives. Tutmos the third recounted carrying off uh, 430 jars of honey as booty 
following his conquest of Canaan in the 15th century, which is right around the Moses' time, I believe, maybe 100 years earlier, uh, and because Moses, Moses 15, uh, 1440 or something like that, I think 1440, so it's about 100 years earlier. Uh, and then he mentions uh, uh, another uh, group here, 264 jars of honey collected as tribute. Okay, so this is, uh, it was the beginning of a, of a seed change when this was discovered in Tel, I say Tel Rehov, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know how to speak Hebrew, but uh, this changed everything uh, once this was discovered. And uh, this is another excerpt uh, from this article. It says, rearing bees in hives and the production of honey and beeswax is one of the least understood aspects of the economy during the Bronze and Iron Ages in, in the ancient Near East. The Bible does not refer to beekeeping Though in Egypt, there are a number of pictorial depictions of bee rearing and various ancient Near Eastern texts indicate that honey was a well-known and prestigious commodity in antiquity. However, no beehives had ever had, past tense, ever been found at archaeological sites in this region. Thus, the discovery of an apiary of an industrial nature in the Iron Age at Tel Rehov constitutes a unique and extraordinary discovery that, in fact, revolutionizes our knowledge of this economic endeavor in general and ancient Israel in particular. Now, these guys are approaching this whole thing from a different, a, uh, a different reason. I'm looking at this information to try to sustain the fact that the land of milk and honey had honeybee, honeybees there, okay? And guess what they find here? These are the hives. These are the same kind of tubular hives with little doors, right, from uh, 1500 BC. And, and here he's showing he's going to open up one of these little doors. Now, I think in subsequent articles, they've been actually able to go in there and find, um, this is interesting, and I'm not going to bring this out, but uh, through DNA sequencing, they have found bee remains in there. And if you remember that uh, picture of where all these honeybees were, um, uh, all, uh, they started here and they migrated outward. Well, those are all part of the Apis mellifera genus. I flunked that course in, <laughs> in high school. Okay, flunked a lot of courses in high school. But there's all these subcategories. And the bees that, were, that are native to Israel don't produce a lot of honey. Yet the bees north of that, up in the Turkey, what we would call Turkey, do. And guess what uh, DNA is telling us? That the bees in there came from Turkey. So these were important enough for them to uh, import those bees down. It wasn't just, oh, we found some bees, we're going to throw them in, in some beehives. This was so deliberate, it's just not an accident that they found these bees, okay? Because they were importing them, and they were importing um, honey-producing bees. In, 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 uh, in America, we use a couple types of bees. We use um, uh, Italian bees. <laughs> I don't know how they... <laughs> They call them Italian. They had nothing to do with spaghetti or pizza. And they're kind of docile, and they produce a fair amount of honey. But they also require a lot of honey to get through the winter. Uh, there's another type of bee. It's a darker bee. It's like a black bee. It's called a Russian bee. 
And those bees don't produce as much honey, and they can be a little more feisty, but uh, they don't require as much honey to get through the winter, and they're very winter hardy. And so these bees kind of adapted to the different areas. Some people like Russian bees. I just raise all Italians, not because I'm half Italian, just because I, I happen to like Italian bees. Okay, now here's another little picture uh, reproducing uh, all these, because you just saw the one, but they're pretty sure they were, uh, there were lots and lots of these beehives there at Tel Roth. And uh, they're kind of showing, okay, they're, they're taking the honey out, and this is just an artist's rend uh, rendition of that. Okay, and we're just about done with, uh, I got one more page, and we've got plenty of time to go into the next uh, section here. So the term honey appears 55 times in the Bible, 16 of which uh, as a part of a metaphor of Israel as the land of milk and honey. This honey has always been understood as having been produced from fruits such as dates and figs with bees honey mentioned explicitly only twice, uh, both times in relation to wild bees. However, careful reading of the biblical metaphors mentioning honey led forty, that paper we talked about earlier, to suggest that they refer mostly to bees' honey. Though in her view, due to the lack of agriculture in the Bible, the reference or to honey collected in nature. And th this is going to go on. Indeed, in no case does the Bible mention bee rearing as a productive industry. The discovery of beehives at Tel Roth show that this was a very well-developed economic branch during the first temple period. We can now assure that at least some of the notations of honey in the Bible pertain to bees' honey. So even these guys are recognizing, prior to this discovery, it was often defaulted to date honey. And this discovery, among other things, has been helpful at changing the opinion of scholars. And so if you go back into older commentaries, they're going to default to, to date honey, which I think is a mistake for a variety of reasons. And this changes that. Uh, by the way, uh, this is a little beehive uh, that was found by uh, Solomon's uh, pools in uh, 975 uh, BC. And uh, they recently discovered this was in a box of archaeological junk. And no one really knew what it was until they looked inside and they found wax deposits. And they connected the two and said, those look like ancient beehives. Because when you, you're excavating things, I don't know if you've ever seen some of this stuff, they just have warehouses full of bones and all kinds of broken pottery, all kinds of stuff. They don't even have time to sort it out, okay? So, all right, so we're, in, we're gonna be done with this. What type of honey is in the land of milk and honey? Honey from honeybees? I say yes, yes, it's, it's uh, honey from honeybees. Honey from dates that have been crushed to made, made into syrup? Yeah, probably too. Is there any evidence that there were honeybees in the Bible lands? And the, the other answer is yes. Okay, so I think we're done with this one here. So I'm gonna put this one to bed. And <laughs> I'm just gonna be out of sequence because this is all I can do. Okay, we're gonna go to honey in the Bible week two. All right. So what are we gonna look at today or tonight? Implications of a land flowing with milk and honey. The promise of, a, of the land, the uniqueness of the honeybee, the, the consequence of honey production and byproducts. So, that's what we're going to be looking at now. All right. So again, these reoccurring themes, continue to think about them when we think of a land flowing with milk and honey. God's promising them something, and that God's giving them the provisions, as we talked about, honey keeps. 
And in an agricultural society without any preservatives, without any way to refrigerate things and stuff like that, something that keeps year-round that does not spoil and is an important food source is important. So if you're going to have a civilization, one of the things you can't have is everyone starving to death all the time. Uh, and then finally, uh, uh, God's protection. We'll, have, we'll look at a, a bunch of the protective qualities of, of honey. Um, and just a, you know, kind of a spoiler alert, honey has been found to be able to treat MRSA, which is a very hard-to-treat infection. Uh, and we'll look at this a little bit more, but you're going to see more and more pharmaceutical uses of honey. It's not just at the health food store. It's, it's actually mainstream, becoming mainstream. There's like 30 uh, registered with the FDA pharmaceutical uh, con honey concoctions. So again, it's not, years ago, this was a, go to the health food store and you take these herbs and there's some honey, that sounds good. This has been pushed right into mainstream medicine, whether you like it or not. Okay, so these, this is the first promise. This, these are the promises. We're going to actually look at these because you know, I don't want to just talk all the time. I want to read some scripture so we all get familiar with this. Uh, the, the promise of the lamb was first given to Abraham and then reiterated to Isaac and Jacob. And what we're going to find is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob traveled extensively throughout the land of Cana. And I think I've said this before, but I'll say it again. They are never promised a land flowing with milk and honey. You will not find God telling, uh, did I pop that up there? How did that get there? Stop it. Get out of there. Oh, you know what? Why didn't you guys tell me I'm, on, I'm not on slideshow? Okay. All right, let me get back here. I'm sorry. Okay. You will not find an instance where Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob are being told that they're going to get a land of milk and honey. They're just saying, you're going to go to a, a wonderful land. It's not till Moses' time that God says, oh, by the way, it's a land of milk and honey. I would submit to you, they were living in a land of milk and honey because Egypt was a fertile area. They had lots of honey. And so if you're going to, if, what's going to be on the moniker? You're going, you know, like this, uh, what is it? Uh, let's make a deal or something like that. What's behind door number three? And then you open the door. You're going to a great place. It's a wonderful vacation, right? And it's a place that is, isn't half as good as the place you're leaving. I don't think that's going to sell. I personally think uh, what God was saying, I'm going to give you a wonderful spacious land and you're going to have your own, your own bees. Okay. So this is a little pictorial here of Abraham's journey from Ur to Cana. So he kind of starts uh, over there at number one, works his way up to Haran, and then works his way back down uh, to Canaan. And we're going to actually read this uh, here. And we can read this here. I mean, I guess we like to do this or we can open our Bibles. Uh, I think I got all nine verses here. Um, well, I'm just going to open my Bible just because it makes me feel better. Okay. Uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. We should have our Bibles. You know, one of the things that people I think is a real disservice is a lot of people have their Bibles on their phones, and I love to draw on my Bible. I think it's a good thing. Now, if one of you are looking at your Bible on your phone, I'm not busting your chops about that. But I happen to like a paper Bible because you can write all kinds of notes there. Okay. So this is uh, Abraham, uh, chapter 12, ver uh, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I'll show you. And these are where the three, uh, I think the three, the, uh, the, the three promises come in. Uh, uh, I will make you a great nation. Uh, I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who will curse you. And all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's through his seed, which is Christ. So that's a trifold promise. Land, uh, a great nation, and the seed of promise, which uh, it was Christ. And that's why you have the genealogy in the New Testament. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. Now Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So remember, we, we, uh, we, uh, Abraham had sort of gotten going, right? I think God, I think prior to this, he said, you got to leave and, um, and go. And so he's up in Haran, and now he's going to go down further, right? Uh, and so the Lord appeared, uh, so, okay, excuse me, um, I lost my, point, point, my place here. Oh, he departed from Haran, verse 4. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abraham passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, to the oak of Morah, and now the Canaanite, the, the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. Uh, then he proceeded from there uh, to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched a tent. And with Bethel on the west and Ai uh, on the east, there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, continuing towards the Negev. Uh, did I go here? Oh, yeah, we'll just, we'll just stop there. Oh, by the way, this is interesting. <laughs> I might as well bring this one up. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to where? Egypt. Egypt was a fertile place, right? Let's go down there because we're starving to death up here, right? Go down there. Now, I think, uh, um, I think Isaac tries that trick or something, and God says, no, no, you don't go down there. You stay put, okay? But uh, Abraham did, uh, did go down there, all right? So this is the, that's the first promise. And uh, now the next one is uh, this next one here, Genesis 13. And we'll just read this one here. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are, which is Bethel. Okay. We're going to try to, I can never tell this. Bethel is right here in the middle of the land of Cana. Uh, Look around from where you are, to the north, to the south, to the east, and the west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring uh, could be counted. Go walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, and there he pitched his tent, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And these little red dots are places where Abram, in his encounters with the Lord, has, has, has built these altars. The point I'm, I'm going to continue to make is that the patriarchs traveled up and down the promised land. They saw what was going on. I would suggest they saw beehives as one of the things uh, that was going on there. So this is the next uh, this is the next uh, occurrence in Genesis where God tells Abram, you're going to a great place. Uh, this is Genesis 15. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch 
appear. This is like this covenant they're going to make and pass between the pieces. They've chopped up an animal and they're, they're walking, they're passing between the, uh, it's, it's a sign of the covenant. Um, and uh, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites. This is like the seven people. Uh, the Kenites, the Ken, Kenizzites. These are actually more. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, yeah, there's, there's more here. Eventually, it whittles down to seven. The Kenites, the, the Kenizzites, the Kamadanites, the Hittites, the Perserites, the Rephites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And some of those eventually, they're still the, the big seven that they're going to get kicked out. Okay, so this is another one here. Genesis 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Abram, Ab when Abram, not Abraham. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I'm God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face. And God said, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and between your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be their God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the lands of Cana, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So again, God's promising that land. And this is, uh, this one here is a lot of, it talked about Abram's sojourning, and so again, you see Abram going, you know, when he, that's when he goes to Egypt because things are, he's running out of food, he goes down there. But he's all over this area seeing what it has to offer. And I guess that's, that's my point. It wasn't as if, I don't know what's going on in that land. And it's, I think it's fair to assume that he probably told his sons, hey, this is a great, and oh, by the way, they're going to see it too. And then his, his grandsons, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriots are going to see this land. They're going to continue to go through there. Uh, now, this, is a, this next one here is with Isaac, okay, because God repeats that promise. Uh, now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I'll be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your descendants, I will give all these lands, and I will confirm it with an oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions, so Isaac stayed there. And, but Isaac does eventually move around also. Now, I think we have, a, we have time. We've got like six minutes left. So now we have Abraham. Now we're down to Jacob, okay? Uh, and this is in Genesis 28. Uh, where is he? He has to get away because I think he's... Uh, uh, he's gotten, I think, Esau pretty mad. I think he's, uh, Esau, I think he's gonna try to, Esau's going to try to kill him or something like that. He goes north. He gets out of there, right? He gets out of Dodge. So I think he starts here and goes way up there. 
and then eventually comes back down. But the point is, is he's going throughout this land as well. Okay, uh, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, which is way up there. And he came to a certain place, Bethel, and stayed there that night because the sun had set, taking one of the stones in the... Uh, I'm sorry. I'm looking at the second screen. Well, let's start over. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place, Bethel, stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up from on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. And it's true. He goes up and he comes back down again. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So my bumper sticker here is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob traveled extensively through the land of Cana. And we know from, and I will continue to prove this, from historical evidence, there were domesticated bees there. So these guys were familiar with it. And I say here in this next slide, uh, there is the promise of land, but what is missing in all these accounts? A more detailed description of the land. You never find God telling Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, they can see with their own eyes because they're going through it. Now, now, this is where the promise is reiterated to Moses with greater detail. A good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land flowing with milk and honey, and a land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord is giving Israel its own land with plenty of honey. I, I maintain it's honey from honeybees. Uh, and let's see, this one here. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't know if we're going to look at these verses. Take my word, they say land of milk and honey. This is an interesting... Oh, i got to get back here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I have to... Okay, i got one more slide. This is going to be uh, pretty good. Uh, then Moses summoned Dathan and uh, Abiram, the son of Elab, and they said, we'll not come. There's a, there's a revolt that's going to go on here uh, in numbers. We'll not come. Uh, so these guys aren't listening to Moses. They're revolting against him. But here's what they say. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in this wilderness? Must you also appoint yourself as ruler over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. And what does this mean? Being sarcastic? I would submit some commentators say, yeah, they're being sarcastic because there was no honey in Egypt. Well, that is not true. There's honey in Egypt. They're, I don't think they're being sarcastic. I think they're saying, Moses, there were a lot of honey. There's a lot of honey. It was a fertile land. Oh, by the way, Abraham went there when he was starving to death. Uh, and I think it's a, a sloppy scholarship to say, oh, they're just being sarcastic. There's more than that. Okay, uh, this is the slide I really want to get to. This one here. This is really interesting. Okay, and it's a good place to end. 
There were a lot of pharaohs in Egypt. I think there were like 29 pharaohs or something like that. And each one of them had a thing called a cartouche. And a cartouche is sort of like a signet. It's a representation of who you are, okay? And in, and in each case, uh, the pharaohs, starting at this guy way back here, 3150 BC, then here, then all the way up to Moses' time, almost Moses' time, got this curious little creature here. Remember we saw that earlier? It was a honeybee, right? This is how the pharaoh is identifying himself, okay? And what is this little thing? This little, it's a little plant. It's a sedge. And this, a sedge there is the papyrus. The Chinese did not, if everyone thinks China was in a, you know, a, 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 a advanced society way before other things, they did not invent paper until around the time of Christ. Prior to that, there was no paper. Okay? They did not invent cellulose-type paper. What everyone was writing on in the known world was papyrus. Egypt had the corner of the market. That's where it grew, and they guarded the, the secret of how to make the papyrus reeds into papyrus sheets, and they sold it to the world. And so the uh, pharaoh had a way of identifying himself, and he called himself, he, pharaoh, of the sege, the papyrus, and the bee. That's when the pharaoh wanted to say, who am I? I'm the guy with the papyrus, and I'm the guy with the honey. And that is so important because it shows a, a completely different picture of how important it was. The Pharaoh could have said, I'm the guy of the papyrus and the gold bars. I'm the guy of the papyrus of the pyramids. He chooses two things. And what I'm trying to main, sustain and, and, and present to you is that honey was a big deal. He identified himself by the two biggest things, I, I think, was papyrus, because if you're going to have a modern civilization, you got to be able to write stuff down. One of the things you got to write down is who owes what tax, right? That's one of the things. And the other thing you got to write down is how much inventory do I have here and all these other kind of transcriptions and uh, things like that. And oh, by the way, honey becomes this trading commodity uh, where you can trade it. And for your own civilization, if you want to have a flourishing civilization, uh, <laughs> sorry, I got to a place I wanted to get to. If you want to have a flourishing civilization, it's good to, it's good to have papyrus. Now, the, 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 there was no papyrus in, in Canaan. They had to buy it. They had to buy it from the Egyptians. Uh, otherwise, they were writing on vellum, which is sheepskin, and that's expensive. You don't want to write down a grocery list on vellum. You, you know, that's, no, that's reserved for the holy books, right? Uh, so they needed papyrus, but they had their own honey, and we'll get into that uh, later on, what, what else honey gave them. But for now, uh, we're done for tonight, and I'm trying to remember how many slides. Okay, I've got about halfway through. I got uh, slide 18 of 33. So uh, Dave, Pastor Dave says, Lou, you're going to teach uh, first hour Sunday. So if you want to hear more, about, more, more, more about, to be continued, I'm going to 
Lord willing. And it is, by the way, it's a great honor that our pastor has said, Lou, can you come up here and teach? I take that as one of the highest honors I possibly can get. So thank you so much for indulging me tonight. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your promises to us. We can think of so many, but the promise we're so grateful for is the promise of eternal life. Thank you that it protects us from hell. And we pray as we go about our life uh, each and every day, bring someone into our life that we can tell them about the promises of God and the provision you've made for their salvation and the protection it offers them against uh, uh, damnation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.